And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We have two interesting interviews for you today, and both of them relate to the world and legacy of Walt Disney. And it's appropriate because 2023 marks the 100th anniversary of the opening of Walt Disney Studios. Part one is a brand new interview about a brand new book about one of Walt Disney's biggest dreams, a dream which ultimately went unfulfilled. Part two from the Morning Show Archives is with the author of a book called One Day at Disney, which takes us behind the scenes and introduces us to some of the people who create the so-called Disney magic. Here's part one. On WGTD's Morning Show today, we're going to be exploring a really fascinating story that springs out of the life and legacy of the great Walt Disney. And it is nice timing because... Uh, the year 2023 marks the centennial of the beginning of Walt Disney Studios. It was modest beginnings, and of course, ultimately, uh, Walt Disney created a, an extraordinary entertainment empire that includes, of course, a rich legacy involving film and television and, of course, theme parks all across the world and, and many other ventures that have made uh, the name Disney uh, one of the most prominent on the American landscape. We're going to be exploring the story of a dream of Walt Disney's that ultimately did not reach fruition. And that in and of itself makes for a fascinating story since uh, Walt Disney was someone uh, not inclined to surrender any dreams. And, and indeed, he had a ferocious interest in creating what was going to be, in a sense, kind of a real-world winter wonderland. The book in question is called Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. This was a passion project of sorts for Walt Disney, who very much wanted to create uh, some kind of family getaway uh, in a place called Mineral King, uh, an exceptionally beautiful place in, 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 in the mountains of California. And for a lot of different reasons, one of them, of course, being uh, Walt Disney's uh, untimely death in 1966, uh, he was not there to personally shepherd this project to completion. But even if he had not had his life claimed by cancer, uh, it's far from certain that he, even Walt Disney, could have seen this uh, dream fully realized. Uh, it's a complicated story told very, very well by uh, two co-authors who also happen to be real-life husband and wife, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, who uh, both uh, uh, live in Colorado and work extensively, write extensively on various issues. Greg Glasgow particularly writes about uh, um, uh, entertainment, and Catherine Mayer uh, writes uh, primarily about business, among uh, other other topics. And together they have fashioned this book, which is published by Roman and Littlefield, titled Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. Greg Glasgow, Catherine Mayer, we welcome both of you to The Morning Show. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks for having us. Great. Catherine, is it Meyer or Mayer? I should have asked you before we began. Oh, it's okay. It's Mayer. Mayer. Okay. All right. I will try to remember that. And uh, I answered it both. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> Very good. Glad that you can be here. Uh, maybe we could begin by talking a little bit about how the two of you 
even found out about this story. Uh, this is a story I, I don't think I had ever heard a single word about, and uh, it, it must have crossed your path somehow. And how did it cross your path? And then what about the story uh, was so intriguing to you that you thought it was worthy of this kind of exploration? Sure. So we had I had grown up with the Disney parks and, and thought I knew a lot about Disney history, yet I we really didn't hadn't heard about this until it was 2018. Greg and I had gone to San Francisco. We were there a couple days and decided to check out the Walt Disney Family Museum, which focuses a lot on the history of Walt Disney and had a huge timeline of his life. It had maybe two lines, I think, about the fact that Walt Disney had in the 60s tried to build a ski resort in California. And it had mentioned also that his partner on the project was a man named Willie Schaeffler, who we were familiar with because he was a famous skier who resided in Colorado for many years. He was the head ski coach at the University of Denver, which is my alma mater. It's where we had worked and met. And so those couple things combined, we were like, this is so interesting that we had never heard about this. We started researching it, just, you know, curious journalist types, of course, and realized that this was a major story you know it wasn't the fact that walt disney had tried and failed to build this thing but we the more we you know uncovered it it was nearly two decades essentially of of battle and just so much was happening in a very rich time in disney's history and no one had fully told this story before and we thought let's try it Hmm. i'm impressed with how thoroughly you tell the story i'm curious what kind of research was involved in terms of un- uncovering so many details, particularly about the sort of just behind the scenes? I mean, and how much of this story was, in a sense, uh, obscure and, and difficult to uncover? Definitely, yeah. The research was sort of a treasure hunt in some ways and going down different rabbit holes, looking at things. We were able to contact several people um, on both sides of the story, either Disney employees who were there at the time or the children at Disney employees who were there at the time. Same thing on the environmental side. We spoke with Michael McCloskey, who was the CEO of the Sierra Club at the time all this was happening. So that was great. And then we went the USC in California has a really great Mineral King archive that we visited. There's other archives at other universities and libraries that were very helpful. A lot of it was just going through literally thousands of newspaper stories at the time and really getting the sense of how it was being covered at the time, going through Sierra Club documents and meeting minutes and Disney annual reports. So it was really just a huge amount of things to go through and we would just find little nuggets here and there to put in. It's very exciting. Hmm might be interesting for us to uh, turn for a moment to uh, this moment in Disney history. So first of all, kind of remind us of the point in time at which Walt Disney first began to have this serious idea of, of building this new kind of ski resort. Um, when was that and what was the state of affairs at Walt Disney Studios Uh, at the time that he began formulating this idea? Good question. We're talking about really the the early to mid-1960s when they were trying to build this thing. And 
kind of an actually interesting uh, point in Disney history because in Walt's life, because in 1960, Walt was actually the director of pageantry at the 1960 Winter Olympics, which is another thing that a lot of people don't realize. And that was kind of a jumping off point for him to, to kind of get this idea. But essentially for, for the Disney company, this was a really interesting kind of fertile time in in the history of the company. So of course, you know, animation was still pretty much their their bread and butter, but they had some things kind of go bad, go badly, including Sleeping Beauty, which didn't perform as well as they had wanted it to. Um, but things kind of turned around with Mary Poppins, a lot of other movies. And this was, you know, just a few years really after they created and opened Disneyland, which was an also very monumental, of course, for the company. So this development in Mineral King, California would have actually been their second experiential destination. Um, and at the same time as they were creating this ski resort and really all year destination, um, they were also starting to build the, or not build, but plan the Florida project, which then, of course, became Walt Disney World. One of the things that your book makes very clear is that Walt Disney was someone who, uh, in at least in some respects, could be called an environmentalist and somebody who had a, a really intense love of the outdoors, of the natural world. And and I guess I had forgotten, because I think for whatever reason, a lot of these particular projects don't sort of have the staying power of, of uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Fantasia and other, other things. But, but in fact, he was responsible for sharing with the world a great deal of, of programming that, that sprang out of this love of the natural world. Remind our listeners about the scope of that kind of work by Walt Disney and and some of the work that he did even apart from his work at Disney uh, that reflected this this love of nature and the natural world. That was a great surprise to us in the research that Walt really was. He had spent part of his young life on a farm in Missouri where he really sort of developed this love of the outdoors, of animals, of nature. And then in the 1940s, he created the True Life Adventure series of nature documentaries, many of which are streaming on Disney Plus, which we've, you know, we've seen them a little bit, but never quite knew what they were. But this was a about a 12 year spate of you know, 12 to 16 different films shot all over the world, showcasing animals and nature. Of course, Bambi was really seen as a big environmental galvanizer with the scene of the of the hunters in the forest and, you know, shooting Bambi's mom and all this. And those things were sort of ironically seen sort of widely as helping to birth this environmental movement that ultimately protested this resort and and caused it not to happen and walt had even won um, several environmental awards from different organizations mainly for the true life adventures including in 1955 the sierra club gave him an honorary lifetime membership you know just about 10 years before they started protesting this development so he really had this rich history with nature and the outdoors it was really fun to uncover for those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today on The Morning Show with Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, the co-authors of a really fascinating new book called Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, 
the environmentalists, and the ski resort that never was. It tells the largely untold story of how Walt Disney harbored for quite a few years, right up to his death in 1966, the dream of opening what would be kind of an unprecedented uh, ski resort uh, in a beautiful place called Mineral King. And uh, the book is the story of, of the struggle to bring that dream to reality, uh, a struggle which, at least in, in the most direct sense of the word, ultimately ended in failure. This might be as good a time as any for us to hear about this place called Mineral King, uh, which you uh, describe in really breathtaking detail uh, in your book, and which at one point uh, is described in your book as the perfect spot for a year-round outdoor tourism mecca that would uh, capture the magic of the mountains in true Disney fashion. Uh, tell us more about Mineral King itself, this location exactly uh, where it was and remains located, uh, and ultimately what drew Walt Disney to be so interested in it. Mineral King, California is sort of, it's in the Sierra Nevada, kind of in the middle of the state on the eastern side, north of Bakersfield, and a little bit sort of southeast of Fresno. And it really was this valley that had a, had a mining history, hence hence its name, Mineral King. It was part of the, sort of the gold rush of the 1800s. Um, but nothing really ever was found there to much extent. So after the miners left, it really became this sort of recreational place. Is right on the edge of Sequoia National Park. It was accessible by a really sort of primitive, very windy road. And a lot of environmentalists, including the Sierra Club, really saw it as this great sort of untouched valley in the California wilderness with lots of streams and lakes and these beautiful peaks all around. And it was just an area that they really didn't want to see developed, especially by Disney, who they had seen, you know, in Anaheim, what had happened with Disneyland and a lot of the development that cropped up around that. So this was just a one of these great primitive areas of California that a lot of people wanted to see preserved and didn't want to see turn into a ski resort with thousands of people coming in every day. Uh, in the chapter in your book where you really describe uh, Mineral King in, in, in some detail, I think it's chapter two called Finding the Perfect Spot, you say something really intriguing that I'm, I'm anxious to hear a little bit more about, and namely, uh, when you say at one point, Walt Disney knew ski resorts were ripe for change. The experience left a lot to be desired. So in other words, uh, Walt Disney's interest in this particular project did not just stem out of his own love of skiing uh, and his desire to you know, have something that would be successful, but there was something about the way the typical ski resort was put together that in his mind at least, was not quite right. Explain that sort of dissatisfaction that Walt Disney had with ski resorts and the way in which he intended to try to reshape it into something the world had never seen before. Sure. So ski resorts at the time were really more or less kind of a day activity. So people would go up there for the day and go down the slopes. And a lot of times it was also for very athletic types. So we're obviously not talking about 
you know, people who had never skied before, non-skiers, families, that type of thing. And so the way Walt was envisioning it was really, let's kind of create this place and this destination that's really a vacation destination. People can go up there for several days. They could ski, they could not ski. You know, at the time it was, people would go up there, yeah, really for the day and maybe they would have a, a beer or two at the at the beer hall at the at the end and then they would drive home. There really wasn't kind of hotels around the area and there are certainly not other things for people to do that, that you know, went beyond skiing. So Walt was really also thinking about it from, of course, the family-friendly level that he had always thought about things. So he would also have ice skating. He was going to have sledding. In the summer, he was going to have, you know, hiking and and biking and wilderness talks and walks. And people could go to the movie theater. He was going to build a movie theater that, that of course, would have showed Disney films. And he's going to have shopping, a bunch of different restaurants. He was going to have uh, numerous hotels as well you know, for different economic levels and depending on what families wanted to do. So he was, you know, he was looking at skiers, of course, but he also was looking at non-skiers and families as well. And, you know, we got to think about what he did with with Disneyland when at the time amusement parks were, were also very kind of run down. They weren't what we imagine, you know, a Disneyland type to be. And Walt certainly changed that. And he certainly would have changed, would have changed, these ski resorts as well. So who were Walt Disney's most important allies as he was first sort of constructing this dream and uh, beginning to, to, to plan it? Who, who, who are the most important people that wanted to see this happen? And, uh, and, and, and what was their motivation? What was in it for them to, uh, to want to see this dream uh, come to fruition? Well, he had Willie Schaefer, as we mentioned before, as kind of his partner, the skier. But, you know, outside of the Disney company, this was something that a lot of Southern California and, and all California skiers really wanted to see happen, especially this Mineral King area is really equidistant from L.A. and San Francisco. So it would have been a great thing for skiers in those areas to be able to drive really just a few hours to this where a lot of the other ski areas in California were were far away from that. He had a lot of politicians on his side early on, um, the governor of California. They did a press conference together shortly before Walt died, actually, um, Governor Brown, and he had actually secured some funds to, to improve that really primitive road into a, a highway. Um, and a lot of business people were on the side, his side as well, and this would have been a great boon to the economy. So we look back at the newspapers of the time and you can really see in 65 when this was first announced that Disney was going to be building this, a lot of excitement among skiers, among business people, among politicians that were all really, you know, excited for this to happen and this would have really turned Mineral King area into a big destination for skiers and tourists. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer about their book, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. Well, needless to say, we've already hinted at the fact, uh, there was some very, very fervent opposition uh, to this development going forward. And this is some of the most uh, interesting material in your book, as you really chronicle for us 
who stood in uh, firm opposition to this and how they went about uh, doing this. And, of course, right at the forefront were some of the people who lived in, uh, in uh, uh, Mineral King. Uh, tell our listeners about kind of the nature of this opposition and uh, a couple of the key figures who led that opposition. Sure. So as you mentioned, obviously, the people who lived in Mineral King, that, that was certainly a, played a big role. And, you know, we talk about Mineral King being this kind of pristine area. However, it wasn't untouched by man because there were, you know, a handful of people who, who lived in that area. There were about 60 cabins at the time. So a lot of people spent a good portion of the year there. And of course, when it, for this development to be created, they were not sure about exactly what would happen to their cabins. And the, the consensus is probably that they would have been torn down to make way for this. And of course, they didn't want this to happen. And a lot of the opposition, of course, was led by the Sierra Club, who was the, the main environmental group, who they loved Mineral King. They actually spent quite a lot of their time time there. So, you know, selfishly, they didn't want that to be to be ruined and have thousands of people coming in and whirling machinery and, and certainly a, uh, a Disney company who who was at the helm of this and you know in their minds disney was the company that was responsible with kind of this cheesy creation in anaheim they had just built disneyland but around the bigger anaheim area lots of quote-unquote cheesy motels and gift shops and that kind of thing sprung up in, in its wake and they didn't want the same thing to happen to mineral king and and probably the bigger issue is that we're talking about the 1960s and the 1970s. And this is really when we're seeing a lot of momentum in the environmental movement, the modern environmental movement, along with the women's rights and civil rights and anti-war sentiments and things like that. And development was an area where people were very, became very vocal. They didn't want all these wilderness areas to be developed and to be quote unquote ruined. And so there was a lot of, you know, people being quite fearful of that fact. Hmm. I'm glad you uh, made mention of, of, you know, the timing of this, because, of course, we're talking about a period when not only is the environmental movement uh, gaining ground uh, and, and for good reason, uh, but also that this was the era of uh, in which women were stepping forward in, in ways that they had not done before. And and many women probably finding themselves uh, doing things that might have been unthinkable for them to do uh, even 10 years earlier. And uh, I, I love the story you tell in Chapter 8 called Rise of the Resistance, where you tell us about a woman who lived in Mineral King uh, with her husband, but it was really her who led the vanguard, who uh, was so uh, relentless uh, in, in, in the letters she wrote and other things that she did uh, for this cause of preserving Mineral King. Can you just say a quick word about this woman I'm talking about? Absolutely. Her name is Jean Coke, and yeah, she's a fabulous woman, a, a fantastic character that we highlighted certainly in the book. And um, unfortunately, she actually just passed away earlier this year, but, but at the age of 100. So she had wow. a good long life, yeah. And, but she was... Uh, 
such an important player in this story and she lived in mineral king so of course didn't want this to happen for at least part of the year she lived in mineral king and she basically led a number of different protests actually a march on disneyland which which happened which we're excited for people to read about in the 1970s she led a bunch of hike-ins in the mineral king area she wrote hundreds and hundreds potentially thousands of letters to lawmakers to the disney company to politicians to newspapers um just saying this is a huge mistake we can't develop this area and yeah she was was really monumental to the cause and and which was so great that we had found her and were able to to talk to her especially again given the time and 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 seeing you know how important she was for the environmental movement but also of course the women's rights movement of the time right uh, as you're talking about her, uh, you bring up a really interesting matter, which was uh, came up kind of in a squabble involving the National Wildlife Federation, if I'm remembering correctly, and she ultimately canceled her membership in that group because uh, that group, for various reasons, did not share her concern and did not hold the same opinion about whether or not this this Disney project should go forward. But part of that argument, in a sense, between her and uh, the National Wildlife Federation came over the question of whether or not we were really talking about unspoiled wilderness with Mineral King. I mean, the fact that this was uh, a place where uh, there had been mining and there had been development and there were people who lived there and so on. So, in a sense, to characterize it as wilderness, at least in the technical sense of the term, was not was not quite accurate. And it's just really kind of interesting to think about how when it comes to something as important as that, how it can turn on on matters of language and accuracy and how best to characterize uh, a, 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 a piece of land. Uh, I, I found that to be a really interesting uh, matter in this whole story. That's right. Yeah, I'm glad you found that interesting. Yeah, the area, you know, it was right as we said on the border of sequoia national park and had it not been for the mining activity that happened there in the 1800s probably would have been part of sequoia national park when those boundaries were first drawn in the early part of you know the 20th century but because there was still remnants of mining equipment there were still active claims that was left out and then as we said as this sort of recreational site emerged at one point there was even a sort of almost a resort up there like a summertime resort by the time the 60s rolled around there were about 60 cabins there there was a general store a post office so you know those mountains and the slopes and most of the valley was still untouched wilderness but there was definitely some development and that really came into play as you said with some of these groups you know really questioning you know is this worth protecting i mean isn't this isn't this already kind of developed and that's a question that we you know really delve into more in the book right and of course it's so interesting it's very easy to characterize something like this as some big conglomerate sweeping in and uh, doing something that's going to be terrible and i think your book is is fair to all participants and and i think you're careful in your book to say that at least the intention of the Disney company was to to do this with as small a human footprint 
as as possible. I mean, it was absolutely their hope and intention uh, to do this carefully. I mean, one might argue about whether or not, in fact, that's even possible. But I appreciate you being uh, even-handed about that. I also appreciate the fact that you take time to talk about what it felt like for for those working for this project to have Walt Disney suddenly die of cancer in 1966. And in particular, I think you do such a wonderful job of describing his brother Roy, his older brother Roy, who for at least a short time had to take the reins. And you take the time to contrast the two brothers, Walt and Roy. Uh, I'm just curious, in an already complex story, uh, explain why you thought it was really important for us to understand who Roy Disney was and his role in all this. So, yeah, I mean, Walt's death played such a big part in this story, obviously. He died pretty unexpectedly in, in 1966, late 1966. And, of course, that had a big impact on on this story and basically what was happening with uh, with Mineral King, California and the resort he planned. Roy, I mean, Roy played such a big role too. And, and we don't hear about Roy too much, and but, but we should because he, of course, founded the company with Walt. He, but he, he was really behind the scenes in so many ways. And that's really what he preferred. Obviously, Walt, we were used to seeing someone like Walt on television all the time and talking about Disneyland and talking about his films and Roy was kind of behind the scenes working on all the financing, making sure all those dreams came true and for Walt. And I think, again, that's kind of why it was so important was because, you know, who would carry on some of these dreams for, for Walt? And you said at the beginning of this, Walt was one not to, not inclined to surrender his dreams and certainly that was also the case for Roy and it was really important for us to to tell that story and and kind of talk about why Roy wanted to continue with some of these things that Walt wanted to do so passionately even when Roy wasn't sure he wanted to do them (laughs) so uh, you know that was a really big big part of the story was that Roy wanted to to keep going with the Mineral King project, even when a lot of the opposition kind of grew after Walt's death. But, but Roy wanted to keep this going for him. Your book chronicles, of course, that mounting opposition and uh, the, the court cases all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, back and forth. And ultimately, the, uh, the law that is passed in 1978 that that uh, attaches Mineral King to the Sequoia National Forest and and right there ends any possibility that this can ultimately come to fruition. It's in a sense a failure, but your book also talks about how uh, some remnants of Walt Disney's dream do survive uh, in terms of the way in which the whole business of ski resorts uh, was remade. We just have a, a, a minute or so, but can you summarize uh, that particular part of this uh, legacy? Sure. Well, like we were talking about this idea of sort of the family-friendly resort, the all-season, you know, year-round resort is something that, you know, is almost just sort of standard now when we think of ski resorts and going up and staying in the hotels and shopping and maybe going up in the summertime for concerts or whatever but a lot of that was sort of you know 
predicted in a sense by the plans for mineral kings so it really you know they were as usual disney was kind of on the forefront of what this would become what skiing would become and we also in the book talk about sort of some longer lasting effects on the company itself and the way that it you know designed some of its properties and things like that and of course there was long lasting impacts for the environmental movement as well so a big part of this story for us was what came next you know although like you said it sort of ended in 78 with the signing of this bill there was a lot more impacts that that happened in the years to come right and I appreciate the, so much of what we learn about Walt Disney and his world and his undertakings even beyond this specific project and, of course, uh, his extraordinary vision. Uh, at one point in, in talking about his creation of Disneyland, you, cre- uh, you talk about it as entertainment that wasn't bound by a movie screen to build three-dimensional real-world attractions that would transport kids and adults alike into an all-encompassing realm of fun and magic. All of that and more in this wonderful book called Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort that Never Was, published by Roman and Littlefield, and it includes lots of really, really interesting photographs. And uh, responsible for this book, uh, co-authors and husband and wife, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. Thank you both for joining me today on The Morning Show, and thank you for giving the world this fascinating book. Oh, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to to talk with you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. You're listening to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We're devoting the program today to the world and legacy of Walt Disney. 2023 marks the 100th anniversary of the opening of Walt Disney Studios. The following interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2019. And in this portion of the Friday Morning Show, I am delighted to be speaking with a Disney fan and journalist by the name of Bruce Steele, who has helped put together a marvelous new book called One Day at Disney, Meet the People Who Make the Magic Across the Globe. This is a book in which we, in a sense, experience Disney all around the globe uh, through the course of essentially a single day. And uh, we're going to be talking with Bruce Steele uh, for the next few minutes about what it took to uh, assemble all of this wonderful information, all of these marvelous photographs, uh, and uh, what people are going to experience themselves if they take this book in hand. Again, the book is titled One Day at Disney, Meet the People Who Make the Magic Across the Globe. Bruce Steele, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So tell us, uh, first of all, a little bit about uh, what is behind those words, Disney fan. Uh, what has been your relationship to the world of Disney over the years? Well, I mean, I grew up as a, a Disney fan, watching all the Disney movies. I remember being so happy when uh, I'm old enough to remember when VHS tapes first came out, and then uh, you could get your favorite Disney movies and watch them over and over again. Uh, and then in the 1990s, uh, my husband was actually a Disney animator. 
So we had that magic silver pass that lets you go down to the theme park anytime you want and take guests. We lived in Los Angeles, and so we could go down to Disneyland and Anaheim uh, as many times as we wanted. Uh, so I can't tell you how many times I've been there. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I wonder what uh, particular projects uh, your husband worked on. I mean, would these be things that we have seen, or was he an animator in, in a sense in more behind-the-scenes fashion? No, he worked for uh, four years on a, a, a Disney animation feature called Dinosaur that came out in the year 2000. Very good. You know, your uh, your account reminds me of very close uh, family members that I have who uh, are at Disney all the time. I mean, repeatedly, year after year after year, they absolutely love it. And they aren't growing tired of it. And I think some people from the outside looking in would imagine that it, at some point the spell begins to, to wear off. And yet, at least for some people, that really does not seem to be the case. And it doesn't sound like it's at all the case with you. Uh, explain kind of the lasting power uh, that, uh, that the Disney experience has on, on a lot of people. And I think that's a good segue into uh, this beautiful book. Well, I, I would compare it to, uh, you know, in Peter Pan, when they, they leave London and go to Neverland, uh, and it's just, you know, it's this beautiful, idyllic place uh, with some pirates, but um, it's a place that you can just revisit and, and sort of leave the world behind uh, and enter a world that's, that's perfectly made and perfectly displayed and fully entertaining and colorful and, and then it's both always the same and yet always different. I guess that's the part that sometimes people who are really not <laughs> Disney people, so to speak, maybe don't kind of appreciate or they that that sense of sameness is all that they maybe understand or all that they notice and uh, maybe not fully appreciating all of the ways in which Disney perpetually remakes itself, reshapes itself over the years. And I'm sure as someone who's been such a frequent uh, visitor to various theme parks, you've seen that up close. Well, yeah, and, and to tie it to the book, we talked to about a dozen different people uh, in the Imagineering department, and the Imagineering division of Disney are the people who think up everything that goes into the theme parks, uh, from the decorations that you see on the street to uh, the uh, very elaborate rides uh, that they come up with that everybody loves. And they are, you know, they're constantly at work and constantly creating new things. One of the things that's a, a big part of the book is the creation of Galaxy's Edge, the new Star Wars, immersive Star Wars land that's at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. So, yeah, they, they, they're at work all the time creating new experiences. Not sitting on their laurels at all. <laughs> so let's talk more specifically about uh, this book and, and what an ambitious project it was. First of all, whose idea was it, this idea of following, in a sense, the worldwide world of Disney through the course of a single day? Whose, whose idea or concept was that? Well, it actually goes to Bob Iger, who was the CEO of the company. I mean, as part of his job as CEO, he goes all over the world and meets all of these people who work for Disney in all of these different capacities. And he thought it would be really interesting to show people who love Disney all of the different jobs that go into the creation of, well, what we call the magic of Disney. And, of course, not just, for instance, Disney World, which is maybe what most Americans know uh, most intimately, but Disney as it is, as it is experienced uh, across the globe. So, for instance, 
when we open up the book, uh, where are we first? Well, the first the first stop is actually Walt Disney World uh, with a young woman named Stephanie Carroll, who is a ranch hand. Uh, but one of the interesting things about the jobs in this book is is Disney takes ordinary jobs like ranch hand and makes them sort of magical and wonderful. And although her main job is to take care of the horses and to guide people on, on trail rides, she also gets to dress up in uh, the magical coachman outfit from Cinderella and drive the Cinderella coach with a team of six white horses uh, that are used for what they call fairy tale weddings. You can hire out the, uh, the Cinderella coach as part of your wedding for wedding photos and for a wedding experience. And also the Cinderella coach, of course, uh, appears in the parades at Walt Disney World. So not only is Stephanie Carroll taking care of horses, which she's been doing since she was eight years old, she also gets to be uh, a character uh, in this story. Hmm. And so Disney takes care to make sure that people that uh, might even have what at a glance would seem like a rather mundane sort of position or responsibility, they see to it that even those kind of jobs have a little bit of magic sprinkled into them, so to speak. Well, sure. I mean, take, for example, the security guard uh, at, uh, well, there's two security guards in the book. One of them is at the, at the Disney Studios. And, of course, you would think security job would be, security guard would be a, sort of a boring job. But he's the guy who, you know, gets to talk to Chris Pratt and Keanu Reeves and, and all these people that come in and out of the Disney Studios. The other uh, security guard is at Walt Disney World, a guy named Pete Dufour, who is a, another Army veteran. Uh, there's several in the book. And Pete uh, gets to run what they call the flag retreat ceremony every day at 4.30 when they bring take the American flag down at the plaza at the end of Main Street, USA, and uh, retire it for the day. And every day they pick out of the guests who are coming into the park, just randomly select somebody who was a veteran, uh, a United States veteran, and have that veteran participate in the flag retreat ceremony. And they honor that veteran's service uh, every day. Uh, a different veteran. So even these really uh, jobs that you would think would be uninteresting have uh, really interesting elements to them. Lovely. We're speaking with Bruce C. Steele about uh, the book that he helped put together titled uh, uh, One Day, One Day at Disney, Meet the People Who Make the Magic Across the Globe. I do want to make sure we spread our gaze uh, on on sort of uh, an international level. But I do want to have you explain to our listeners how much of the United States we see in this book. I mean, a lot of people, of course, know all about Disney World, and a lot of people know about Disneyland, which came before it, that sort of on each of of the coasts. But you don't settle for just those two locations. Uh, ex- explain to our listeners some of the other places right here in the United States uh, that you also take us to in this book. Well, of course, Lucasfilm, that creates all the Star Wars movies and experiences, is located in the Bay Area, as is uh, Pixar up around San Francisco. So we spend a lot of time in uh, the San Francisco area. ESPN is headquartered in Bristol, Connecticut, so we also have to go to Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, have to go to New York City to talk to Robin Roberts from Good Morning America and David Muir from ABC World News Tonight. Uh, and, of course, then we go to the uh, theme parks in uh, Orlando and Anaheim. 
Now, I'm probably leaving some out, but that's a that's a good example. So that reminds us, of course, that Disney is not just the things that are emblazoned with those Mickey Mouse ears or uh, whatever other logos we associate with Walt Disney uh, himself and Disney itself, but uh, also uh, some of the properties that Disney owns and, and operates, and that's a considerable list. It is a considerable list. It's uh, Pixar and Lucasfilm and ESPN and ABC and Adventures by Disney and uh, Broadway shows. There's a, there's a lot going on. So take us beyond the borders of the United States, because, of course, that's part of what is really wonderful about this book. Uh, we don't even have time, of course, to go through the entire list. But uh, tell us some of the places outside of the United States uh, that your book takes us. Well, of course, we have to go to uh, the Shanghai Disneyland Resort and Hong Kong Disneyland and uh, Disneyland in Tokyo. My favorite story about uh, the Asian properties is it was very difficult for me to set up interviews with the folks in Asia because when they're going to bed, it's about the time we're getting up in the morning. Right. So I finally, I finally had to get up really early in the morning to talk to um, a woman who uh, is a stage manager for the parades at, at Tokyo Disneyland. And I talked to her at 7 o'clock my time in Asheville, North Carolina. And about 15 minutes into the interview, there was some this noise on the line, like, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And they said, oh, the fireworks have just started here. Ah. So it's 7.15 in the morning on the East Coast in Japan. They're wrapping up the day with the fireworks at Disneyland Tokyo. And I just thought that was a, a, an amazing uh, example of the scope of Disney and how there's always something going on 24 hours a day somewhere in the world. Right. One of the things that uh, Disney fans will especially appreciate is that you take us behind some of those cast members-only doors uh, where a lot of the magic is actually created away from the public eye. What kind of access were you given, and what did you think about in terms of what would be most uh, interesting to share with the public? And maybe some of those decisions weren't even entirely yours to make. No, the cast the cast members were indeed selected before I came on board the project. That that was a, a process that took um, more than a year, and uh, I came on for the last year of the project to do the interviews and the writing. My favorite behind the cast members uh, visit for myself was I was in Walt Disney World, and I got to go to what is called the Holiday, Holiday Services Warehouse, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a huge warehouse. It is bigger than any Costco you can imagine. And there is nothing in there except holiday decorations, 50-foot trees, tiny little uh, trinkets, uh, entire rows of nothing but Santa heads and reindeer and all this stuff. And then in the back, uh, in the back of the warehouse is an area that looks like an auto service kind of facility, except instead of servicing autos, they're servicing holiday decorations. So in place of uh, an automobile on uh, uh, brought up on uh, a lift. They've got garland hanging there in front of them, and they're fixing up the garland for, for the holidays. And these, and these people work at this 365 days a year. And you wouldn't even think of it unless uh, you were you're reading something like One Day at Disney. Hmm. Sometimes when we examine things that kind of have an aura of magic about it, uh, sometimes when we examine things more closely, the magic begins to, to dissipate a little bit. I get the sense from the way you're talking that this has not uh, had that effect at all on you. If anything, 
you uh, appreciate the the magic of Disney uh, even more deeply now. I, I think figuring out how the magic works uh, just makes it more magical because there is all this work and energy and uh, planning and scheming and testing. I can't tell you the uh, how many times they have to test out the, the rides that they put together for the theme parks before they even get to the part where they're building it. Um, and then there's this, but there's a magical leap in between uh, the technology and the nuts and bolts and the actual experience that is just sort of inexplicable. And uh, I think knowing everything that goes on before you get to the experience just makes that experience all the more fascinating. Hmm. Bruce Steele, the book is One Day at Disney. Meet the people who make the magic across the globe. Thank you so much. Best wishes. Thank you.